Chapter Twenty Two of Ronicky Doone. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Reading by Rowdy Delaney, Idaho, USA. Ronicky Doone by Max Brand. Chapter Twenty Two. Mark makes a move. Passing hurriedly out of the cloakroom a little later, Ruth met Simons, the lieutenant of Frederick Fernand, in the passage. He was a rat-faced little man with a furtive smile. Not an unpleasant smile, but it was continually coming and going, as if he wished earnestly to win the favor of the men before him, but greatly doubted his ability to do so. Ruth Tolliver, knowing his genius for cards, knowing his cold and unscrupulous soul, detested him heartily. When she saw his eyes flicker up and down the hall, she hesitated. Obviously he wished to speak to her, and obviously he did not wish to be seen in the act. As she paused, he stepped to her, his face suddenly set with determination. "'Watch John Mark,' he whispered. "'Don't trust him. He suspects everything.' "'What? Everything about what?' she asked. Simons gazed at her for a moment with a singular expression. There were conjoined cynicism, admiration, doubt, and fear in his glance. But instead of speaking again, he bowed and slipped away into the open hall. She heard him call, and she heard Fernand's oily voice make answer, and at that she shivered. What had Simons guessed? How, under heaven, did he know where she had gone when she left the gaming-house? Or did he know? Had he not merely guessed? Perhaps he had been set on by Fernand and Mark to entangle and confuse her. There remained, out of all this confusion of guesswork, a grim feeling that Simons did indeed know, and that, for the first time in his life, perhaps, he was doing an unbought, a purely generous thing. She remembered now how often Simons had followed her with his eyes, how often his face had lighted when she spoke even casually to him. Yes, there might be a reason for Simon's generosity. But it implied that he knew fairly well what John Mark himself half-guessed. The thought that she was under the suspicion of Mark himself was terrible to her. She drew a long breath and advanced courageously into the gaming-rooms. The first thing she saw was Fernand hurrying a latecomer toward the tables, laughing and chatting as he went. She shuddered at the sight of him. It was strange that he, who had a moment before, in the cellar of that house been working to bring about the death of two men, should now be immaculate, self-possessed. A step farther and she saw John Mark sitting at a console table, with his back to the room and a cup of tea before him. That was, in fact, his favorite drink at all hours of the day or night. To see Fernand was bad enough, but to see the mastermind of all the evil that passed around her was too much. The girl inwardly thanked heaven that his back was turned and started to pass him as softly as possible. "'Just a minute, Ruth,' he called, as she was almost at the door of the room. For a moment there was a frantic impulse in her to bolt like a foolish child afraid of the dark. In the next apartment there was light and warmth and eager faces and smiles and laughter, and here, behind her, was the very spirit of darkness calling her back. After an imperceptible hesitation, she turned. Mark had not turned in his chair, 
but it was easy to discover how he had known of her passing. A small oval mirror, fixed against the wall before him, had shown her image. How much had it betrayed, she wondered, of her guilty, stealthy pace? She went to him and found that he was leisurely and openly examining her in the glass as she approached, his chin resting on one hand, his thin face perfectly calm, his eyes hazy with content. It was a habit of his to regard her like a picture, but she had never become used to it. She was always disconcerted by it, as she was at this moment. He rose, of course, when she was beside him, and asked her to sit down. "'But I've hardly touched a card,' she said. "'This isn't very professional, you know, wasting a whole evening.' She was astonished to see him flush to the roots of his hair. His voice shook. "'Sit down, please.' She obeyed, positively inert with surprise. "'Do you think I keep you at this detestable business because I want the money?' he asked. "'Dear heaven! Ruth, is that what you think of me?' Fortunately, before she could answer, he went on. "'No, no, no. I have wanted to make you a free and independent being, my dear, and that is why I have put you through the most dangerous and exacting school in the world. You understand?' "'I think I do,' she replied falteringly. "'But not entirely.' Let me pour you some tea. No? He sighed as he blew forth the smoke of a cigarette. But you don't understand entirely, he continued, and you must. Go back to the old days, when you knew nothing about the world but me. Can you remember? Yes, yes. Then you certainly recall a time when, if I had simply given directions, you would have been mine, Ruth. I could have married you the moment you became a woman. Is that true? "'Yes,' she whispered. "'That is perfectly true.' The coldness that passed over her taught her for the first time how truly she dreaded that marriage, which had been postponed, but which inevitably hung over her head. "'But I didn't want such a wife,' continued John Mark. "'You would have been an undeveloped child, really. You would never have grown up. No matter what they say, something about a woman is cut off at the root when she marries. Certainly, if she had not been free before, she is a slave if she marries a man with a strong will. And I have a strong will, Ruth, very strong. Very strong, John, she whispered again. He smiled faintly, as if there were less than what he wanted in the second use of the name. He went on. You see, I have faced a problem. I must and would marry you. There was never any other woman born who was meant for me. So much so good. But, if I married you, before you were wise enough to know me, you would have become a slave, shrinking from me, yielding to me, incapable of loving me. No, I wanted a free and independent creature as a wife. I wanted a partnership, you see. Put you into the world, then, and let you see men and women? No, I could not do that in the ordinary way. I have had to show you the hard and bad side of life, because I am— in many ways, a hard and bad man myself. He said it almost literally through his teeth. His face was fierce, defying her. His eyes were wistful, entreating her not to agree with him. Such a sudden rush of pity for the man swept over her that she put out her hand and pressed his. He looked down at her hand for a moment, and she felt his fingers trembling under that gentle pressure. "'I understand more now,' she said slowly, than I have ever understood before, but I'll never understand entirely. 
a thing that's understood entirely is despised, he said, with a careless sweep of his hand. A thing that is understood is not feared. I wish to be feared, not to make people cower, but to make them know when I come and when I go. Even love is nothing without a seasoning of fear. For instance, he flushed as the torrent of his speech swept him into a committal of himself. I'm afraid of you, dear girl. Do you know what I have done with the money you have won? Tell me, she said curiously, and at the same time she glanced in wonder as a servant passed softly across the little room. Was it not stranger than words could tell that such a man as John Mark should be sitting in this almost public place and pouring his soul out into the ears of a girl? I shall tell you, said Mark, his voice softening. I have contributed half of it to charity. Her lips, compressed with doubt, parted in wonder. Charity? she exclaimed. The other half, he went on, I deposited in a bank to the credit of a fictitious personality. That fictitious personality is, in flesh and blood, Ruth Tolliver, with a new name. You understand? I have only to hand you the bank book with the list of deposits, and you can step out of this Tolliver personality and appear in a new part of the world as another being. Do you see what it means? If, at the last, you find you cannot marry me, my dear, you are provided for, not out of my charity, which would be bitter to you, but out of your own earnings. And lest you should be horrified by the thought of living on your earnings at the gaming table, I have thrown bread on the waters, dear Ruth. For every dollar you have in the bank, you have given another to charity, and both, I hope, have borne interest for you. His smile faded a little, as she murmured, with her glance going past him, Then I am free? Free, John? Whenever you wish. Not that I shall ever wish, but to know that I am not chained, that is a wonderful thing. She looked directly at him again. I never dreamed there was such fineness in you, John Mark. I never dreamed it, but I should have. Now I have been winning Carolyn to the game, he went on, and she is beginning to love it. In another year, or six months, trust me to have completely filled her with the fever. But now enters the mischief-maker in the piece, a stranger, an ignorant outsider. This incredible man arrives, and in a few days, having miraculously run Carolyn to earth, goes on and brings Carolyn face to face with her lover, teaches Jerry Smith that I am his worst enemy, gets enough money to pay off his debt to me and convinces him I can never use my knowledge of his crime to jail him, because I don't dare bring the police too close to my own rather explosive record. I saw them both here, said the girl. She wondered how much he had guessed, and she saw his keen eyes probe her with a glance. But her ingenuousness, if it did not disarm him, at least dulled the edge of his suspicions. He was here, and the trap was laid here, and he slipped through it got through a certain room which Fernand would give a million to keep secret. At any rate, the fellow has shown that he is slippery, and has a sting, too. He sent a bullet a fraction of an inch past Fernand's head, at one point in this little story. In short, the price is too high. What I want is to secure Carolyn Smith from the inside. I want you to go to her, to persuade her to go with you on a trip, take her to the Bermudas, or to Havana, any place you please. The moment the Westerner thinks the lady is running away from him, of her own volition, he'll throw up his hands and curse his luck and go home. 
They have a sort of pride on the other side of the Rockies. Will you go back tonight, right now, and persuade Carolyn to go with you? She bowed her head under the shock of it. Ronicky Doone had begged her to send Carolyn Smith to meet her lover. Now the counterattack followed. Do you think she'd listen? Yes. Tell her that the one thing that will save the head of Bill Gregg is for her to go away. Otherwise, I'll wipe the fool off the map. Better still, tell her that Gregg of his own free will has left New York and given up the chase. Tell her you wanted to console her with a trip. She'll be sad and glad and flattered all at the same moment and go along with you without a word. Will you try, Ruth? I suppose you would have Bill Gregg removed if he continued a nuisance. Not a shadow of a doubt. Will you do your best? She rose. Yes, said the girl. Then she managed to smile at him. Of course I'll do my best. I'll go back right now. He took her arm to the door of the room. Thank heaven, he said, that I have one person in whom I can trust without question, one who needs no bribing or rewards, but works to please me. Good-bye, my dear. He watched her down the hall, and then turned, and went through room after room to the rear of the house. There he rapped on a door, in a peculiar manner. It was opened at once, and Harry Morgan appeared before him. A rush job, Harry, he said, a little shadowing. Harry jerked his cap lower over his eyes. Give me the smell of the trail. I'm ready, he said. Ruth Tolliver has just left this house. Follow her. She'll probably go home. She'll probably talk with Carolyn Smith. Find a way of listening. If you hear anything that seems wrong to you, anything about Carolyn leaving the house alone, for instance, telephone me at once. Now go and work, as you have never worked for me before. End of chapter 22